And when Jonathan asked me if I would preach a little while ago at an evening service, I felt pretty torn. And a, a big part of me was pretty much screaming no. And I could come up with lots of very good reasons, um, excuses, as why not to. Yet, I felt that God had given me a passage to speak on, even before Jonathan asked. And that passage was from chapter 2 of John's Gospel. Now, I didn't know that John chapter 2 was to be the passage for the morning service just a few weeks later. So I feel very privileged to be here now speaking on it again. So, if you're at the evening service, back on the 6th of March, what I'm going to say will sound familiar. (laughs) So, why this passage? Well, a couple of years ago, I studied John's Gospel at Bible Study Fellowship, and this passage was one that really stood out to me. But since then, this particular passage has been one that I've kept coming back to, and every time I've always been amazed that I've learned something new. Now, the way that Bible Study Fellowship works is that we're asked to spend time each day looking at passages and answering questions. And we're asked to do this without looking at commentaries, so just using our Bibles. Then once a week, we come together in small groups to discuss our answers and work through the questions together. After this, the small groups come together as a large group, and the teaching leader gives a lecture which gives further insight into the passage before we leave with a set of notes and our next set of questions. And what I found particularly interesting about this passage was that the answers that I came up with when studying it on my own, well, some of them just weren't great. I I think I can go as far as saying they weren't right. And it made me realise that I need the input of other people and how important it is that we study the Bible together. So I'd like to give you an example of this. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Well, I found the words that Jesus says here to his mother rather strange. Woman, why do you involve me? You see, it appeared to me that Jesus is perhaps a little exasperated by his mother, or that maybe Mary is being a little pushy. So I found it really helpful to learn that Jesus wasn't saying woman in a leave-me-alone kind of way, because in that time and culture, woman was a courteous and a respectful form of address. See, if we look forward to John chapter 19, verse 26, at what Jesus says to his mother from the cross... So when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. It's beautiful, isn't it? We can hear the word woman being said with such tenderness. So knowing this changed the whole feeling of the passage for me. Instead of thinking that Jesus is rather fed up with his mother, this was actually an opportunity for Jesus to express his love for her. And there's another thing about this Bible passage that I think is important, and that is that it's not about alcohol. I think it's possible to completely miss the point of what God is saying to us here if we get preoccupied as to whether the wine that Jesus made was alcoholic or not. Now, I had a little look online at wine in the Bible, and I got overwhelmed quite quickly with what I read. 
because there are Bible passages both commending and condemning the use of wine. So, whether this wine was fermented or unfermented, please don't get snagged up on this, because it's possible not to get beyond it. And by focusing on the alcoholic content of the wine, we could completely miss the blessing and the joy of what God is saying to us. And I think there is so much that God is saying to us through this passage. So my talk is divided into three parts. We first look at Mary, then at the servants, and then finally at Jesus. It is by no means comprehensive. My original notes were 24 pages long, so I think you'll be glad that I've cut some of it out. But it's highly likely that this wedding involved a relative of Jesus' family. Now we can conclude this because Jesus' mother evidently held a special place at the feast. She not only appears to feel some responsibility when the wine runs out, but we also see that she has some authority too, because it's Mary who tells the servants what to do. We know that in Jesus' day, running out of wine was more than a minor social embarrassment. It was a major problem. The family had an obligation to provide a feast of the socially required standard. And to fail in adequately providing for the guests would involve social disgrace. I even read somewhere that running out of wine at the wedding feast could potentially have resulted in serious legal consequences for the wedding couple. Why does Mary involve Jesus? She had never seen Jesus perform a miracle, but she just seemed to know that he would bring the situation to a satisfactory conclusion, that he would in some way meet the need. Mary takes the problem straight to Jesus. How often do we take our problems and difficulties straight to Jesus? This reminds me of the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So if we look at verse 5, Mary said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. I love this. Mary has no doubt that Jesus would do something and that he would involve the servants. She expects Jesus to involve others in the answer to this situation. And we should consider Mary's words here for ourselves every day of our lives. Do whatever he tells you. What is Jesus telling you to do? Are you being obedient to what Jesus is telling you to do? Or perhaps, how can you, like Mary, encourage others to be obedient to what Jesus is asking of them? Do you regularly take the opportunity to ask Jesus what he wants you to do? Our faith, if it is genuine, will always be expressed in actions. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Now, let's move on to the servants. 
Firstly, isn't it just typical of God that he chooses to use the servants, the nobodies, those with the least esteem? God so often chooses nobodies, the weak, the lowly, the humble, the unskilled, the uneducated, when he needs a job to be done. I found this quote, God's favourite instruments are nobodies, so that no man can boast before God. In other words, God chooses whom he chooses so he might receive the glory. He chooses the weak instruments so that no one will attribute the power to the instruments, but rather to the God who wields the instruments. Jesus gives the servants two tasks to do, and he tells them exactly what to do. Firstly, fill the jars with water, and then draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So the first task that Jesus gives them, fill the jars with water, is specific and relatively simple. But although simple, it would have been a lengthy and quite an arduous job to fill six stone water jars. They were really, really large jars. And I've sometimes wondered if at any point whether these servants grumbled, feeling that this was a rather pointless and unnecessary task. But we know they did it. And that they filled them to the brim. We don't know their attitude But I'd actually like to think that they listened and obeyed, doing the task that Jesus gave them wholeheartedly, maybe even joyfully, the way that I'd like to think that I would do a task that Jesus gives me. Now, the second task doesn't appear to me to be quite as easy. Draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Imagine how angry the master would be if they bought him water to taste. What were these servants thinking when they were asked to take what they thought was water to the master of the banquet? I wonder, did they hesitate? Did they consider the trouble that they could get into for giving him a glass of water? Yet, in faith, they obeyed the word of Jesus. It appears to me that they trusted Jesus. They had confidence in him. They knew the task that they were doing was worth doing. The tasks that God gives us are not always easy to do, but they are possible and they are necessary. God doesn't always tell us why we should do something, but God always blesses obedience. And because of their obedience to Jesus, these servants shared in the joy of the miracle Jesus performed the miracle, their part was to obey him. And I'd like to think that they knew that Jesus wouldn't let them down. I love the fact that Jesus wanted the cooperation of the servants. He could have filled the jars himself, or just as easily created the wine in the jars. But he knew that if the servants shared in the work, they also shared in the blessing. And it's true for us today too. Jesus wants our cooperation in the work that he is doing. It's the work of our hands through which God blesses the world today. So I'd like to think that these servants had their faith awakened on that day, 
their faith awakened and their lives transformed. So we've looked at Mary, we've looked at the servants, now let's look at Jesus. Now, so what are some of the things we know about this miracle? Well, we know that Jesus used this miracle to confirm and encourage the faith of his first disciples. It says in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And this is typical in our Christian lives too. When we experience God doing something great, our faith is deepened and we believe in him all over again. And we see here too that Jesus personally relates to the troubles and difficulties of daily life and that he has sympathy with the things that cause us shame and embarrassment We also learn that Jesus' power can bring abundant joy into people's lives. He made an insane amount of wine, a wonderful picture that God's grace is not there just to meet a need. God's grace is so lavish, so generous, so abundant, unearned, undeserved. We also learn that we should do the things that Jesus asks us to do. Jesus wants our cooperation. He wants us to share in the work that he's doing. And when we are obedient, we will also share in the blessing and joy that results. But I've come to realize that there is something even more important going on here. Because what Jesus did at this wedding could be described as scandalous, as irreligious, even subversive. Why did Jesus choose the stone water jars used for ceremonial washing? There must have been lots of other jugs that he could have used. There must have been plenty of empties. Jesus was doing something that was potentially offensive. The ceremonial washing jars were holy, meant to be treated with reverence. They had a religious function. They were a symbol of cleansing, a reminder to the Jews that they had to wash and therefore a reminder of their sin, a reminder that they were dirty. Washing symbolised a desire to remain pure from the sin of the world. (coughs) Jesus' choice was very intentional. He was replacing this religious symbol that was in their midst. He was replacing holy water with wedding wine. Wine, when experienced in community, was, and still is, a symbol of celebrating relationships and celebrating life. It represented joy and warmth and celebration. What a wonderful picture Jesus is giving here, right at the very start of his ministry. He's saying that not only is he going to replace religion, but he's also telling them that they will no longer have to do all the things that religion has told them they must do. He is taking them straight to the party at the end. From legalism to life. From religion to relationship. See, their religion was telling them to get to wash, to get cleaned up, 
to get their behaviour in line. But Jesus is telling them that holy water isn't needed anymore. Right at the very start of his ministry, Jesus was showing them that he was going to change everything. He was showing them a whole new approach to God. I wonder if they understood this. Were they excited by it? Or did they find it offensive? What Jesus did at this wedding could be described as scandalous. Jesus had purposefully desecrated a religious symbol. Jesus was saying that it was time for the old covenant to be replaced with a new one. The people at the wedding would know the scriptures, that one day there would be a new covenant. It had been prophesied, promised, anticipated. But when it came, it was still so shocking that it was hard for many of them to see it. The new covenant is spoken about first in the book of Jeremiah. The old covenant that God had established with his people required obedience to the Old Testament law. The law required that people perform rituals and sacrifices in order to please God and remain in his grace. The prophet Jeremiah predicted that there would be a time when God would make a new covenant with the nation of Israel. Jesus brought in the new covenant. He was the new Moses, ushering people into a new relationship with God. It was Moses who turned water into blood, showing that the law results in death. But Jesus turned water into wine, showing the gladness and the joy of his new work. If we look at John chapter 1, verse 17, this acts out what John the Baptist said. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now I think that every time I've written a sermon, and I know that's not many, every time I've written a sermon, I have come to the same conclusion. Thank God for Jesus. And I think it's really fitting that we come to communion now, an opportunity to remember what Christ has accomplished and to renew our commitment to obey. But there's one last thing I want us to think about. Are we more addicted to the holy water approach to life? Do we think what is needed is more cleansing and more rules? Jesus purposefully desecrated a religious symbol. What religious symbols or patterns do we have in our lives that Jesus would like to desecrate? What religious symbols and patterns actually keep us from the joy of abundant wine? What stuff do we do or do we insist upon that maybe makes it harder for others to come to know Jesus? Perhaps we need to ask God to show us what is in our lives that keeps us from the joy of abundant wine. I find this quite a challenge. And as we come to communion, now is the time to look within and to ask the Holy Spirit to show us any areas of our lives that may not be pleasing to God. To acknowledge them, 
to say sorry. And above all, let's thank God for Jesus.